Okay, Jim, this is going to be ready in just, okay, uh, it should come on. Okay, go ahead. See? Yeah, it looks just perfect. Yep. Okay. Collect, which is door, or move, or hang, entrance. I am laid low in dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways, and you answered each of your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be grateful to me, gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your law. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Okay, good stuff. Hey, before we get going, Orion, come up here. Wow, this is wonderful. Here we go. Let me make sure he's... Uh, he's uh, Got to get close to me so they can see online. I got a guy here. He just walked in a minute ago. This guy, the last time I saw him was, uh, let's see, probably 10 years ago out on the beach because they haven't been to the church, but uh, they used to attend every single week out on the beach. And then they moved and then they came back and she, mom says that they've been following us all along. So this young man here, the last time I saw him was probably about up to my knee height. And here he is in, in the superior word. So everybody welcome Renee and uh, Orion. All right, there you go. Good to have you, buddy. Wow, wow, how wonderful. Just wonderful. Um, okay, we've got uh, a prayer request here. Got a prayer request here, which is uh, uh, Eric is in the hospital. Uh, this is Joan, uh, who attends here, her sister's son. Uh, he's losing his battle with cancer, and so um, his... Joan's sister, his mother, Lori, and Renee, and Eric obviously all need prayer. So we want to pray for them. And then Becky in uh, Colorado is despondent over some health is issues, and so uh, we want to keep her in prayer. And then we have, um, uh, I'll read you something. That, yes. Did you know that Sam Peacock passed away? I did not, Sam Peacock. I did not know that. Okay, thank you. We want to pray for the family of Sam Peacock as well, because he... Uh, apparently passed away yesterday. I did not know that. Um, I got a, a letter from one of my friends, and her and her husband, Lynn and Mary, and uh, she said that I could read anything I wanted off of here, but she went through a litany of family problems, including uh, a, a second suicide in the past year, and uh, just a litany of problems. And I just want to read you one of the paragraphs that she, uh, every single paragraph she ended with, but God is good even through the trouble. And then she said, with what we have to look forward to in this country and around the world now, and the steady decline in anything that is moral and right and good, it's going to get really tough and troubling for us all. We've all got stuff coming at us from all directions, and it is hard to take, but God is good. And God watches over us and keeps us through all these trials and tests if we will trust him. God is our strength and purpose and joy, and he is precious in our eyes and will be forever. We will forever praise his holy name and give him all glory and honor. And then she cites from the Valley of Vision, Blessed be thou, O Father, for contriving this way. Eternal thanks to thee, O Lamb of God, for opening this way. Praise everlasting to thee, O Holy Spirit, for applying this way 
to my heart. And she goes on with praise through all of the trials that she wrote about. And so I just want you to know that if you're uh, in a bad situation, if you're depressed, if you've got problems, as we all do, try to have the attitude that she has. She uh, is holding together very well, despite all of the bad things that have happened to her in the recent past, uh, because God is good. And we just need to remember that. So we have that, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read this day in Christian history. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, come into your presence. We thank you for the strength that you provide us when we rely on you. And the more we rely on you, the more strength you give us. And the more we turn our heart to you, the more comfort our heart receives. And we know these things are true. We've read the stories of people for the past many thousands of years, 2,000 years since Christ came, who have relied on you and have trusted in you, and they have been able to uh, endure whatever has come their way. So uh, if things go south for us and we face even more difficult times in this nation, we would uh, pray that you would give us that reminder so that when it does happen and the world is coming apart around us, we will still be able to hold together because of the grace which you have given us in Christ Jesus. And we pray for this class. We certainly pray that uh, you will be glorified through it. And if there's anything that is improper or not correct, that uh, it would be uh, alerted to me so that I could correct it for the people so that they would not have some doctrine which is not correct in their minds and uh, improper theology in their, their directing their lives. We would pray this for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we have... Uh, let's see here. This day in Christian history. Um, let's see here. This goes back to uh, January 28th today. And it says it all began when he was 16. Orion, oh, how old are you? You just told me. And uh, 11. Okay, well, we already know you know the Lord, but uh, uh, this happened to Oswald Smith when he was 16. Oswald Smith grew up in Embro, Ontario, a country stop on the Can Canadian Pacific Railway where his father was the telegraph operator. In the winter of 1906, when Oswald was 16, the Daily Toronto newspapers that the, that the train dropped off every day told of a great evangelistic crusade being conducted in Toronto by Dr. R.A. Torrey with Charles Alexander as the, song, <coughs> excuse me, as the song leader and soloist. Dr. Torrey's messages were published word for word every day in the paper. The articles told how 3,400 people were filling the hall nightly, with many others being turned away. After reading about the meetings for several days, Oswald and his younger brothers boarded a train in the cold prairie winter. They arrived in time to attend the final eight meetings, staying at their aunt's house. Smith tells us what happened. The second to the last meeting came. We had made up our minds to accept Christ that afternoon. It was a special service for boys. There were 3,400 present. We did not know then that her mother had written to Dr. Torrey asking him to pray that her sons might be converted. We arrived early and the hall was crowded. What Dr. Torrey had to say, I do not remember, but I will never forget the way he repeated his text, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and with his stripes I am healed. At the close of his message, he asked for those 25 and over who wanted to accept Christ to come forward. Some responded. Little by little, he lowered the ages until I was included. But to my amazement, I turned into a chunk of lead. 
I did not know then about the power of Satan, but I have found out since. Presently, my brother nudged me, and that broke the spell. I sprang out of my seat, and with a sober face, I took the momentous step. For a moment, I found myself alone at the front. Then I grasped Dr. Torrey's hand and went down into the inquiry room in the basement where I sat on a chair. A man came and spoke to me and then left. But I saw no light and got nowhere, though he thought I was through. Then suddenly it happened. I cannot explain it even today. I just bowed my head, put my face between my hands, and in a moment tears gushed through my fingers and fell upon the chair. And there stole into my boyish heart a realization of the fact that the great change had taken place. Christ had entered and I was a new creature. I had been born again. There was no excitement, no unusual feeling, but I knew that something had happened and that ever after, all life would be different. That was January 28th of 1906 when I was 16 years of age and it has lasted to this day. Yes, and it is going to last, praise God, throughout the countless ages of eternity. Oswald went on to found and pastored Canada's largest church, the People's Church of Toronto. Throughout his ministry, he wrote 1,200 hymns, published 35 books in 128 languages, raised $23 million for missions, which today would be a ton of money, and helped, out, helped send out hundreds of missionaries. From that first step in Toronto, Oswald J. Smith walked with the Lord for three days short of 80 more years. The longest journey begins with one step. For Smith, the journey was a lifetime of serving God in ministry. God used Oswald Smith mightily after his conversion at 16. Have you taken the first step toward God? Unfortunately, many churches today teach a Christianity that does not include a conversion. But that was not the Christianity of Jesus or Oswald Smith. In Matthew 18.3, then Jesus said, I assure you, unless you turn from your sins and become as little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So there you go with that good stuff on Oswald and all that he did for the Lord. And uh, I remember even as a young kid here in Sarasota, the uh, newspaper every Sunday published sermons from all of the major churches in Sarasota. You could go to the uh, sermon section and read sermons from whatever church, Presbyterian or whatever. And boy, is that a gone day. But that was that was every Sunday. If you wanted to read them, there they were. So, okay, we are... Uh, we are in the book of Galatians, and what happened last week is I knew it was going to happen. I said, we'll try to get through verse 21, and we did not. And so we'll start again with verse 21, just so that we uh, uh, finish that. We'll just do the whole thing again, as uh, Rick suggested. He said, oh, just do it again next week. Nobody will notice. Everybody sleeps through class anyway, so we'll do that. Let me turn there before you... Uh... Oh, what I'm going to do is I'll start at 19. Yes, that's fine. Start at 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, 21, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that these, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, well, here we go. I'm going to just start from the first one, and we'll go through it again. In this verse, Paul completes his list of works of the flesh. Remember, you had the uh, walking in the spirit or you had works of the flesh. Works of the flesh simply means that you're living as a human being and you're not raising yourself in uh, your attitude 
towards Christ, okay? And once again, I've already said this, but I'll say it again, is that if you are saved, you are saved. And so he's making a point here, and he says, those that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the qualifier is that if you are saved, you are saved, and you can still walk in the flesh, okay? He's telling believers not to do that, and he's talking about unbelievers. But here we go. Um, Paul completes his list of works of the flesh. After this, he will give a summary thought concerning people who pursue such works. This verse begins with envy. This is identified as strong feelings or desires which sour due to the influence of sin. It is the jealousy of a bitter mind which shows displeasure at the success or blessing of another. Okay, we don't want to be jealous. We want to just be happy for people that excel and we want to uh, uh, not, not try to, uh, in our hearts, covet what they have just because they have more than us or a better position in life, whatever. Um, helps word studies goes on to say that figuratively this is their words it is the miserable trait of being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain yeah. don't want to do that we want to rather uh, mourn with those who mourn we want to rejoice with those who rejoice and uh, try to keep our you know and it's hard I, I, I have to tell you there are people that have uh, taken over the government right now that if they <laughs> suffered I may just not feel as bad as I should about it um, I, it, it's hard to not feel that way. I, I admit it. I just, it's very hard to look at the way things are in the world and to know that we are taking exactly, exactly the same steps that other countries around this world that have killed 20 and 30 million of their own citizens took in the turn of the last century. And we have people that are actively talking out loud, professors in this nation that say that that needs to happen to the people that they disagree with. And they're not being called out on it. And they're saying this in universities openly, that a certain number of people in this nation need to be called. And there's no end to that. Once you start down that road, there's no end to it, as they found out in the Soviet Union. It's one group and then another group and another group, and pretty soon you've... It's hard to not... Uh, uh, can you do that later, please? It's, it's hard to not... Um, uh, White I've men, Charlie. I've lost, I've lost my thought. We'll go on. Um, Following this are murders. This item is not in many manuscripts, but assuming it belongs, it is the unjust taking of life from another human being. It does not include capital sentences of death that are rightly handed down. We talked about that, and uh, we had some people that were executed over the past two months, and of course, every single time somebody was executed, there were people outside with their crummy little signs that say, thou shalt not kill and saying that, uh, and you know, these are not Christians that are doing that, but they're trying to get Christians to shut up by using the word against them, not understanding that the word of God doesn't mean uh, what they have in their hands. They're using an archaic version where kill uh, does, right in the Bible, you are instructed at certain times to kill this group of people or kill that group of people, okay? And that would be a contradiction. There is not. The word in Hebrew is ratzach, and it means murder. Thou shalt not murder, okay? And when somebody murders, the society says that uh, we are to uh, take their life. They are to be executed because it is a capital crime. It's not just a crime of a particular society. It is a crime against God because man is made in the image of God, okay? And so we want to uh, remember that capital crimes are to be punished with capital sentences. 
And when we don't do that, we are act. And that's why the left doesn't want us to do this. It's not because they care about those people that are being executed. It's because they hate the God of the Bible. They hate what he stands for, and they hate the fact that we would uphold the laws of God by doing what we are doing. That's why they are doing these things, and it's exactly the same reason why they abort babies, is because babies are created in the image of God, and by killing those babies, they are killing God's image bearers. So they take one side on one issue, and they take exactly the opposite side on another issue, and they come up with things that are completely contrary to the word of God because they hate God. That's why these things happen. Uh, the next item is drunkenness. This is immoderate drinking. The Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol during any dispensation. Just today, I typed it a week ago, but today I was doing the graphics for um, uh, Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 28. And I'll take you there right now just so you can see this. This is a uh, uh, Deuteronomy 14. Uh, let's see here. It says there in verse 20... Uh, uh, let's see here. We'll just start at 25. Then you shall exchange it for money, talking about the silver that you have. Take your money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink. Wine in that is the Hebrew word yain. It means alcoholic wine. It does not mean grape juice. And then the next word similar drink in Hebrew is shakar. Okay. Uh, shakar is exceedingly strong alcohol. Okay, that would be comparable to whiskey today. All right, that's right in the Word of God. And my point, the irony, which I will repeat this, and you'll hear this in about 10 weeks when we give that sermon, the irony is that we have people in churches all over that preach tithing. Okay, they say you must tithe. And that is an Old Testament principle. It is from the law of Moses. It is not ever mentioned in the New Covenant. As a matter of fact, it is contrary. It causes a contradiction in what Paul says in the New Testament. Okay, but they preach that and then they will go in the next week and they will preach a sermon that you cannot drink. And they're both in one sentence right there. And so you see the contradiction. They take one part of the law of Moses and they say, well, you must do this, which isn't mentioned in the New Testament. And then they take another part of the law of Moses and they say, you're not to do that, even though it says to go and buy your spend your money and buy that thing. And I'm not promoting alcoholic drinking here. You do whatever you want. That is your choice, and you have liberty in Christ. In the New Testament, the same thing is true. I've got a whole study on whether drinking is allowed in the Bible, Old Testament and New. If you want it, I'll send it to you. And I thought that Jesus' first miracle First miracle. Been... That's right. And, you know, it, one of the things that they, they will say, well, no, that's, that's uh, not alcoholic wine. And it's very clear from the context when he says that they are well drunk, and the word in Greek means that they are drunk. It doesn't mean that they're well drunk full of you know, grape juice. So uh, you have to take everything in the Bible in its proper context, because if you do not, you are forming a pretext. Um, yesterday, she was very gracious. I'm not going to say who it was, but uh, somebody emailed me about Catholicism, and she didn't like that I get down on Catholics. And um, she gave me her thought on certain issues, and she knows what I teach. She watches these things here, and uh, it, 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 she was very nice with her words, and so I didn't go back and snap at her. I said, I cannot go against the Word of God. It doesn't matter to me if you disagree with me. I cannot go against what the Word of God teaches, and I cannot add in what the Roman Catholic Church has added in. I can't do that. 
I can't say that it's acceptable because what they do violates the Bible. And when she came back, she was really gracious and she thanked me and uh, she gave me some comments uh, that kind of made me think she's looking to go in the right direction and she was looking for me to make the stand that I did. And so, uh, and that's the same thing with drinking or with tithing or anything else. It does not matter to me what you think. It doesn't matter to me what any person thinks. What matters to me is what this word says. And if it's in the proper context, I am going to teach that whether people want to hear it or not. Okay? It doesn't matter what any person on this planet thinks because every person thinks something that is incorrect. That's why he gave us this word is to keep us from incorrect thinking about theological matters. And so if somebody emails me and they're mad about me talking about alcohol, I can't help you. I cannot do that because it, it, it's very clear what the Bible says in regard to those issues. I'm here to teach you that, and then you can make your own choices based on that as to whether you want to do this or you want to do this or you want to do this. Same thing with eating pork. Same thing with, you know, whatever. Whatever the issue is, if it is outlined in the Bible, I will tell you what the Bible says about it. Okay, if I'm incorrect in my analysis, I'm the one that has to stand before the Lord and I will, you know, receive my judgment for that. I understand that. But if I believe that I am teaching what is correct, I am going to do that regardless of what the government thinks or regardless of what any individual thinks. I'm going to do what the word of God says. And that's the most important thing in my life to me is to get this word out in a manner that will build you up in your walk with the Lord. Okay, so... um only two times is drinking forbidden in all of Scripture. It's actually referenced three times, but there's two instances, okay? Uh, the first is when the priests perform their functions at the tabernacle slash temple, okay? And the second, that was in Leviticus and Ezekiel. Those are the two times that it's mentioned there. The second is when a person was under the vow of a Nazarite. Other than those two, drinking is not considered sinful unless it leads to drunkenness. And it specifically says when he finishes his vow as a Nazarite, he can go out and drink. Then we know that Aaron and his uh, sons drank apart from the, the, uh, you know, the priests. They drank apart from their duties. But I had one time, I was listening to Jack Van Empey, and he had his mindset that you're not allowed to drink any alcohol at all. And he said, well... In the Old Testament, the priests were not allowed to drink in the service of the temple. And now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you cannot... So he, he made an uh, illegal maneuver, I would call it, a flanking maneuver, and he put theology in where it does not belong, because we are not priests in the, in the uh, temple in Jerusalem. We are believers in Jesus Christ, and those two are completely separate, and it would contradict with what Paul says. So... Uh, you know, be reasonable, think those things through, and don't let somebody sidetrack you. Um, do what is right according to your will in the Lord, if the Lord allows it. And that's what I will say about that issue. Okay, the next issue is revelries. That's uh, the next category. This comes from village merrymaking that took place at the gathering of the grapes. Okay, when people are gathering grapes in uh, a, a village, okay, it's a vineyard village, they're going to have a party. That's where this word comes from. Eventually, the word became associated with riotous parties and drunken feasts. You can see that. It's the grape, grape, grape harvest. The people are out there stomping the grapes, and the next thing you know, they're all partying, and, and that became synonymous with that type of thing, the word revelries. All right? These often hosted unbridled sexual immorality, according to, I believe, Helps Word Studies. I didn't give the uh, 
the uh, reference there, but I believe it was Helps Word Studies that said that. And so these grape gathering festivals eventually turned into to debauched festivals, and that's why we use the word nowadays, revelry. Okay, next, to show that this list is not all-inclusive, and he's gone through a whole list of things, it's not an all-inclusive list, he adds in the comment, and the like. All such works of the flesh and any others like them are contrary to living a holy life dedicated to the Lord. Because of this, Paul warns them precisely of the consequences of such acts with the words, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you also in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He was warning them now before the day of judgment just as he had previously warned them in person, that those who fail to come to Christ and who participate in such works of the flesh will not be saved. Now, he doesn't qualify that there. He doesn't say it in his writings, so that's why you have to take Paul's writings as a whole. If somebody is saved, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that a person is doing the worst thing out of this list imaginable. He says this is something that even the pagans or the Gentiles don't do. And yet he said, kick him out of the congregation, so that let Satan have him so that his flesh will be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of the the day of Christ Jesus. So we know that people that do these things that are saved will remain saved. We know that from the context, okay? Um, actually, we'll go back to one of these in the list. Um, I did it last week, and it just came to mind, and I want to tell you how you have to be careful when you listen to anybody. Um, it's the word translated as... Um, it's translated as heresies. Anyway, yes, there it is. It's ambitions, dissensions, heresies, and then 21 envies, murders. And, okay, the word translated as heresies. Uh, this guy, um, Rick Wiles, I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's he got a, apparently a uh, radio show, and I never heard it. I don't know who he is, but I read a commentary that somebody uh, made on him. He says that if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you cannot be saved because that's a heresy. And he took that saying that this is a heresy and he then come, came to the conclusion based on his faulty analysis of scripture that you cannot be saved. Okay, first, that's not a heresy. And second, he is completely wrong because a pre-tribulation rapture is what the Bible teaches. Okay, I don't know what verses he uses to substantiate not having a pre-tribulation rapture, but I guarantee you he takes them out of context. He takes them from either Matthew 24 or from Revelation 6 or 7 or something, which don't apply to the church at all. Matthew 24 was Jesus speaking to Israel under the law, and Revelation after verse 4-1 is all about Israel. It's all about Israel coming to the Lord through all of the tribulation period and all of the destruction they have to face. Eventually, they will be saved. So if you're using verses in either of those contexts, you're, you've got the wrong verses for your rapture theology. Because, i say it right now and then we'll go on, Paul introduced the rapture in what book? When did he first introduce it? Uh, before that. First Corinthians chapter 15. He qualified it and he uh, ex further explained it in 1 Thessalonians. But 1 Corinthians 15, he introduced the concept of the rapture into Scripture. It was never mentioned before that because he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. Meaning he is now revealing something that had never been revealed. And that was 30-some years after the work of Jesus Christ. At the earliest, that's what they believe the earliest date for 1 Corinthians was 
30 years after the uh, work of Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So from 1 Corinthians 15 is where you begin to get your rapture theology. You don't get it anywhere before that, okay? And then from that point, he further qualifies it and clarifies it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And because the Thessalonians did not understand what he was saying to them, he had to write them a second book called 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he further clarifies the timing of the events showing very clearly that the church will be gone before the revealing of the Antichrist. So, people that are looking for the Antichrist aren't looking for Jesus, because it's very clear. He says those things are not going to happen until after the rapture, okay? It doesn't explicitly say that. You have to infer it from the way that he's written it. But that is where you should get your rapture theology. You shouldn't get it from anywhere else. You can add in, if you want, Revelation 4, verse 1, where the Bible says, and a voice said to me, come up here. Because uh, you have to go back and read my commentary to understand that. But at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it's about verse 1-6, he says to John, write the things that were, which are, and the things which will be after. And he's very clear in Revelation 4 verse 1, after these things, meaning after the church age, and then there's a picture of the rapture. Come up here, John is translated to heaven to have the rest of the vision. And then from that time, he's going back and forth between heaven and earth, giving this vision of the future. So there's your rapture theology. It is not a heresy to say that I believe in a mid-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture. That's really poor doctrine, but it's not a heresy. It's certainly not a heresy to teach what the Bible teaches, which is a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, yes, you got something. Yeah, can you give me those verses again? First Corinthians. One, Corinth, 1 Thessalonians 15, it's about verse uh, 40-something. Uh, what did I say? Uh, okay, uh, yes, 1 Corinthians 15. You want to go there first? As a matter of fact, I'll just go there really quickly because he asked, what are these verses? And I know somebody else will email me about that tonight. Or you can just go to the superior word on YouTube and type in the timing of the rapture. And this is all there. And I just put that, a lady asked me for the written part of that um, video. And so I emailed it to her and then I put it on the superior word website. So if you go to writings and then other at the very bottom, it'll be right there. But one uh, Corinthians 15 and... 51, okay, so start at 50 and then just go down to 55. That'll give you five verses to read, six verses to read. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you want to go there, and it says there in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, hang on, 1 Thessalonians 4, um, he starts in verse 13, okay, talking about him dying and ra uh, uh, being raised again down through 15, but just go to the end of the chapter from 13 to 18, that's another six verses, and then you want to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you want to read verses 1 through, um, uh, just go down through 1 through uh, 9. That'll be fine. No, go through 10. Okay, just go 1 through 10. And that'll give you it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 2 Thessalonians 2. And like I said, if you want that laid out where you understand what Paul is saying, you can go just type in YouTube on the Superior Word channel, the timing of the rapture. I did a uh, prophecy update one time. And, you know, whenever I go somewhere, that's why I, you know, usually I do a regular prophecy update. That takes a lot of work. That's probably 40 or more hours a week of, of reading news articles and, and the like to put together a prophecy update. If I go somewhere for four days, you know, somebody asked me, oh, would you come baptize me? 
I don't have time to do a prophecy update. And so I'll sneak in something that's easy, like doing a, a rapture, you know, a timeline or something like that. So if you see a prophecy update in the old prophecy updates that don't match the regular format, I traveled that week. And hopefully with the COVID-19, I'll never travel again. They're talking now about nobody getting on the, to airplanes in the United States unless you have proof that you were vaccinated. They are trying to talk that in right now in the administration. And if that's the case, I can stay in Florida without ever worrying about it because everybody, this is where people come to vacation. So why would I go anywhere else? Okay, so um, we'll go on now. Uh, it is not a heresy to teach a pre-tribulation rapture. Heresy defined is something that will keep somebody else from being saved. If you teach a doctrine to them that is incorrect and will keep them from salvation, that is a heresy. Jesus Christ is not God. That is a heresy. There is no such thing as the Trinity. That is a heresy. Christ was not born of a virgin. That is a heresy. The reason why is because it fundamentally alters the nature of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ or the Godhead itself, okay? You could add in, if you told somebody in advance of telling them about Jesus that the Bible has errors in it, that would be a heresy because now he has no foundation for his theology because he believes that the Bible, which tells us of Jesus, is has error, okay? So that could be an error or a heresy if you teach them that in advance. You're teaching something and it, it is a heresy to teach it. Don't get me wrong, but what I'm saying is if it keeps them from salvation, it is a heretical teaching. If they already believe in Jesus, they've heard the gospel, they accepted Jesus, and you come along and say, well, the Bible has errors in it, all that's going to do, it's not going to take away their salvation. It's going to ruin their walk with the Lord, okay? They are going to not trust in the word of the Lord, and that'll hinder their life for the rest of their life. This book doesn't have error. Where the error lies is in us, when we have translated it, when we have communicated it throughout the centuries, and we've, you know, uh, we got different texts that people uh, have written, and there might be an error between those texts, and pretty soon it is man who has caused the perceived errors in the Bible. But there are no errors in God's Word, and that can be determined very easily by doing a proper study. It's a long, tedious task. People spend their entire lives doing that. But there you go with that. We'll go on. Um, uh, he added in, and the like, talking of all of these things. He was warning them now before the day of judgment, just as he had previously warned them in the flesh, that, uh, where was I? Warned them in person that those who fail to come to Christ and who participate in such works of the flesh will not be saved. This, they will not participate in the messianic blessings which God offers through the giving of his son. And this brings in the obvious question as to whether our continued salvation is dependent on our works. Because here Paul is saying that, you know, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so somebody would obviously say, oh, well, that means that I've got to do something in order to keep being saved. And that is fundamentally flawed. When somebody tells you that you can lose your salvation, that means that your salvation is dependent on you. That's right. It means that it never was of God. If you have to do something to be saved, or if you have to do something to keep your salvation, it means that God has always depended on you to save yourself. Always. 
Anytime on this, the timeline from the day that you come to Christ until the day that you stop breathing and go off to meet your maker, if you can lose your salvation, that means that it was not of grace. It was of works. And that is, I'm sorry, incorrect. People that teach that you can lose your salvation, if they teach that in advance of somebody hearing the gospel message, I would say you could lump that in with a heresy because that person now believes I have to continue to do things for the rest of my life in order to be saved, which means he's not saved because he's trusting in himself. That's right. Works. You know and they never tell you in advance. That's right. They, they, they won't tell you in advance. But once you get saved, oh, you got to sit in church for the rest of your life. And if you're not there on Sunday, you're going to get a demerit against you. And if you don't give 10%, just as the Bible says, you're going to get a demerit against you. And on down the line, all these things, I'm sorry, you got a divorce. You leave the church and you cannot be saved. And on and on and on, they beat things over people's heads. I understand that divorce is not a good thing. The Bible makes that absolutely clear. And we went through that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay. But that is not a way or a means of losing your salvation. Because if it was, then it was up to your works. Okay, and so we'll just go on with that. There are 10,000 little pet peeves that people will give from the pulpit, and they'll tell you that this and this and this and this is what you have to do, or you're not a true Christian, or you're going to lose your salvation. I would not attend that church any longer. Okay, God's grace covers all sin, but you will have to pay for your sin when you stand before the Lord and receive loss or reward at the Bema Seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go read those sections. They both start, I think, in verse 11. And just read. That will tell you what you're going to have to do when you stand up before the Lord. He's going to burn away all of the bad. And there might be just a little ember of you left, but you will be there in his presence, okay? Or you might get a big cup full of overflowing blessing because you lived a great life, all right? That is up to you from the time that you were saved. And he will... Make sure that everything you do will be rewarded properly. And everything that you do that is wrong, you will receive loss for it. And as Paul says, yet as by fire, but they will be saved. Okay, so, uh, and I know that's a misquote of that verse, but that's what he says. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> let's see. If this is true about uh, losing your salvation, then that means our initial salvation must be as well. Initial and all the way through it means that it is of works. Logically, if one has to do something in order to keep being saved, just think it through, okay? If they have to do something to keep being saved, then the initial salvation is also dependent on what we do, or salvation is not a guarantee. But it is called exactly that by Paul in Ephesians 1. The answer is that all sin, all sin, past, present, and future, all sin is under the blood of Jesus Christ when one comes to him by faith. All sin. All right? And, you know, well, we'll get into that later. Hence, there are two distinct judgments noted in Scripture. The first is that for believers and which results in rewards and loss of rewards. Once again, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Okay? The second is for non-believers, and it will result in condemnation. Paul speaks of these in detail in his other letters. For the believer who has been cleansed by Christ, Paul will next explain what is expected of us while in this continued earthly walk. Okay, now, having said that and talked about the judgment, some uh, the, the Bible says it is appointed for man to die and then the judgment. Okay, and this is a question that I get. It's not an uncommon question, too. And if you've had it, 
get that out of the way right now because it just came to mind in conjunction with rewards and losses is that people will email me and they will say if it is appointed for man to die and then the judgment does that mean that we must die before the rapture in other words are we going to die and then the rapture is going to take us all at the same time or whatever the answer is no and why why is that why, because it does say that it is appointed for man to die and then the judgment. We died to sin. We have, in Christ, died to sin. That is our death, and we are regenerated in the Spirit. And that is the death that the Bible speaks about. Physical death is a result of the spiritual death. If we are spiritually uh, reborn through the death to sin, then our physical death may or may not happen, but it is not necessary okay and that's why when paul says that the rapture will happen and we will be taken we will not die first we will translate immediately from this body to a new body without ever physically dying okay because we have died to sin and we have been granted the new life in christ that was our death and that is our new life and it is done okay the reason why people continue to die and there's a good reason for it okay a very good reason. Why is it a good reason why people continue to die after being saved? It's a good one. What? We're sin. Well, we're yes. In, we're in the physical body. We're in, I understand that. But why is it good that we continue to die and not get translated immediately? Because there'd be nobody here to lead more people to Christ. God has a plan, and people are to be saved throughout the entire church age. If if we got saved and then were taken away, the only people that would ever get saved after that would be if they found a copy of the Bible and read it and were saved, and then they disappear, and that one Bible would be sitting there saving one person every 172 years. There's a good reason why we suffer and die. It's because we are to be witnesses to the people of this world, okay? Does everybody see the logic in that? Because I get that question a lot. Why do we have to continue on in this body? Why do we have to suffer and die? It's because we can use our suffering. You know what? I, I, I may have mentioned this in a Bible class. I may not have. But when I was at the Southern Evangelical Seminary, the missions professor was an old guy, and he was talking about, uh, I don't think he personally heard it, but he was talking about somebody that was saved that had heard a person in a Chinese prison that was in there because of Jesus, and he was singing with all of his heart to Jesus, and he said that it was the most wonderful sound that he had ever heard, the person that heard this person singing joyous songs in prison. He said it was the most wonderful sound. And that affected the people around him enough, just like Paul and uh, what's his name, uh, Silas, when they were in prison, it affected the jailer enough to, to say, I want what that person has. And so this guy is in a prison, he's been beaten, he's been not fed, he's, he's been tortured, and yet he is willing to exalt God, and through that he is able to bring other people to God. That's why we can suffer and not say that God has done something wrong with us. Well, I'm his child. Why am I suffering? Your suffering can be, if you are willing to, it can be used to bring glory to God in front of other people. And that's a hard thing to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not the type to say, this is great when, you know, something bad happens. But if you can do that, if you are that type of person, then you will bring great glory to God in the process, and you'll probably bring souls to Christ 
not by even saying a word, but by simply being the testimony that you are. So there are good reasons for the things that happen to us in our life, even when they're bad, okay? Joseph is a perfect example. Yes? I, uh, I think that if people came to Christ just when they disappeared, it wouldn't be that good of a sales job for anybody to come to Christ. That, that's that exactly kind of right. Yeah. Like, you know, if people just, did, he, what he said, because he, he started out quietly, is that if people came to Christ and then just disappeared, it wouldn't be a very good sales job because they wouldn't have known what had happened and they'd be scared to even call on Jesus. I mean, that guy just disappeared. How do you know what happened to him, good or bad? So that's exactly right. Um, sir, I, I, you know, people will email me and they'll say, I, I can't hear the people in the back. And that's why I try to always repeat what is said. A guy this past week said, can you please up the, the uh, speaker, the amplifier, because I can't hear everything. And uh, so I don't ever mean to cut anybody off. You'll see me put my finger up and that means talk louder. And then I'll try to repeat it. But Sergio yesterday, or maybe it was this morning, uh, did work on the, uh, from Israel, he worked on the uh, speaker or the, what do you call it, the microphone. And hopefully it'll be loud enough because there are people that are hearing impaired that want to hear the studies. And so try to remember that, lift your voice as much as possible. And if it's not enough, I'll repeat you. And I'm not trying to shun you or anything, but it's, you know, especially for the hearing impaired, I, I want them to be able to know what's going on. Okay, we got a life application. If we are to live out our lives after coming to Christ, pursuing any of the vile deeds of the flesh that Paul has described, then those around us will see and will never learn what it means to call on, to Christ, call on Christ. We may not lose our own salvation when we stumble and fall, but we may become a stumbling block to those who might otherwise come to him. Let us pursue holiness and righteousness living all of our days. Okay, I know that's a hard thing to do, but that is what we are being called to do. Okay, 522, please. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Okay, the only difference was long-suffering instead of uh, peace, long-suffering, kindness. I think you said faithfulness. Or, no, what did you say? Peace. I'll say it again. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience, long-suffering. Okay, that's the only one that was different. Okay, uh, beginning with but, because he just said those who do these things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul now contrasts the deeds of the flesh of the previous verses with the fruits of the Spirit. One can understand the contrast when considering that works of the flesh stem from the natural earthly man. He is fallen, and his works produce that which is unfit for the kingdom of God. To contrast this, that which stems from the Spirit is given to show that these do not flow from our own nature, but rather from God. And that's why a couple weeks ago, it impressed Jim enough where he talked about it when opening the church, is walking in the Spirit. Because Paul is telling us very clearly, we can, as believers, walk in the flesh. Or we should, as believers, walk in the Spirit. Either one is possible. It, you know, I always like to bring up driving because a lot of us do not walk in the Spirit or drive in the Spirit when we are driving because of the challenges that come against us. And it's very easy to lose our patience in Sarasota, Florida, when we're inundated with people from other states that have no idea where they're going, what they're doing. And, you know, one of the common mistakes that people make is we have in Florida, and I'm telling this for people that come to visit, you've got a, a road that goes like a normal road, one direction and another direction. And in the middle of those two roads is another road. 
And that road in the middle of the two that we have in Florida is so that people can get out of a lane and stop in that lane and wait for the traffic coming in the opposite direction to go by and then they can turn. And that allows traffic to continue to go in both directions. But people from up north don't know that. And so they stop right in the middle of the lane that you're in and they will wait and everybody behind them is backed up and they do this in places where traffic will really pack up quickly. And that's what happens. And you've got 800 people lined up all of a sudden within 30 seconds because this person didn't get into the turn lane, okay? And that causes people to not drive in the spirit. I will tell you that. So, yes, I understand. Long suffering is gone when that happens because it, it, it doesn't just harm one or two people behind them. It suddenly magnifies itself and you can have a line of 100 cars very quickly because this is Sarasota, Florida and it is the tourist season, okay? So that's why, you know, we have to watch ourselves. I know that was that was my comic relief for the day, comedic relief. Anyway, um, uh, he contrasts the deeds of the flesh of the previous verses with the fruits of the Spirit, okay? Uh, I'll read this again. One can understand the contrast when considering works of the flesh stem from natural earthly man. He's fallen and his works produce that which is unfit for the kingdom of God. And to contrast that which stems from the Spirit is given to show us that these do not flow from our own nature, but rather from God. It should be noted that each of these fruits that he's going to talk about appear to be things which any person, any person on this planet can possess. Okay, does everybody here know somebody that's not saved, that has a, a great patience, right? Or that maybe is joyful all the time. They're always happy. Okay, anybody can possess these things, okay? So, uh, even if they have never come to Christ. However, this is incorrect from a biblical standpoint. Only through the Spirit are our actions acceptable to God. In other words, you can know somebody that is always happy. He is always filled with joy. He's not pleasing to God because he is not in the Spirit. He's doing that in his own natural inclination. That's the way that he was designed. And we all know that everybody is designed differently. Some people get tired very quickly. Some people can last all day and work and not get tired. But what happens when you get tired? You tend to get irritable. That's right. And you add in hunger. You've been working all day. You're tired and you're hungry. As my daughter calls it, getting hangry, you get irritable. And some people it happens earlier. Some people it happens later. That is natural. It's natural for people to be different. Okay. Some people have uh, the ability to overcome things, some people don't. But that does not mean that they are right with God. And that is what Paul is speaking about here. Not a natural inclination that you were born into or that your, your makeup uh, allows. It is something that is beyond that. You are pleasing to God because of Christ, and now you are living in that way because of Christ. The other person is not, and that's the difference. Okay, so uh, without Christ's covering, our works are tainted with sin. And any fruit we have is already corrupted. Further, the use of some of these words is only in relation to that of which is divine origin. This fruit of the Spirit includes, and now here begins the list. The first one is love, which is obviously correct. I mean, Paul writes about love in 1 Corinthians 13. We hear about love all the way through the whole Bible. It is the highest expression of man towards God. It is the highest expression of man towards his neighbor. Start with love. This is love which is expressed to our Creator and to other humans, which is pure and undefiled. And that takes you right to what Jesus said. 
Now, what is the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is speaking about that type of relationship. Everybody can love, everybody can love in different degrees, but that is speaking about something that is sanctioned by God in that sense. And a person could be <clears throat> the most loving person in the world, but if he hasn't come to God through Christ, he does not love God as God can accept because Christ is the expression of our love to God. And so without that, it doesn't matter how loving he is, it cannot be accepted by God. Does everybody see that? Okay. <clears throat> it follows the description given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, and it is a volitional act of the will. It is, in particular, love directed to God more than anything else. The reason for this is that this, as a fruit, is set in contrast to the works of the flesh, which are carnal and earthly. This uniting, I'm sorry, this is uniting that is divisive. So that's the difference. Next one he gives is joy. The word is etymologically, ah, excuse me, this word is etymologically linked to words meaning rejoice because of grace, joy because of grace, and grace. All three of those concepts are linked to this thought of joy here. Therefore, it signifies the knowledge and understanding of God's grace and favor. In essence, it is the recognition of his grace in our lives, something to be truly joyous about. And I read that during a, uh, during a prophecy update about two weeks ago. And it's exactly the type of joy that this is speaking about. We can be in this world and we can be as depressed as we can be. We can be completely unhappy with the political situation. We can be unhappy with our job. We can be unhappy with, you know, our dog is dying and we love that dog. We've had it for 20 years, whatever. And yet at the same time, we can have joy. Now, Joan is sad. We prayed for her at the beginning of the class. Her nephew is dying of cancer, okay? And she told me, we're not, you know, I don't remember the exact words, but he knows Jesus, and so it's okay. As you can see, he's dying of cancer, and yet he is filled with joy. Why? Because he has a hope that transcends what's going to happen to him, which is gonna happen to every one of us if the Lord doesn't come first. So we need to keep our joy perspective in its proper box. Yes, we are allowed to be unhappy. Yes, we are allowed to be angry. Yes, we are allowed to be all of these things because the Bible allows them. And yet at the same time, we are to have joy. And the joy is because it transcends the world that we're in. We know that Christ died for our sins. We know that we are going to be with Christ forever. Nothing can take that away from us. We are saved eternally and therefore let us express joy. And that is the joy that that guy in the prison cell in China that I talked about had. He knew that his torture meant nothing in the bigger scheme of things. And so he was able to, through his tears and his, his mourning out to God, sing to the Lord because he had joy that transcends those things. Okay. Philippians is full of joy. Full of joy. I should have said that. Philippians is the epistle of joy. And where did he write it from? A prison. That's exactly right. And when we think of prison, we think of somebody that's sitting there on a cot and he's watching cable TV and he's going to have three hot meals that day. Okay. And he gets to go up on the roof of the prison and walk around in the sun three times a day. That is not what a Roman prison was like. If you want to read descriptions of Roman prisons, type it in. What was a Roman prison like? And you, they were dirty. They were disgusting. They were filthy. They often had no light at all. They were down in 
basically tombs underground. And if there was light, it was because of a lampos, which is a, a torch. And so what's happening is you're polluting your lungs through the smoke and your eyes hurt. And so any light at all is light you probably didn't even want to have around you. Okay. And you, somebody had to feed you because they didn't feed you in Roman prisons. And if you didn't have anybody to feed you, you could either barter with somebody in prison to get some of their food or you could die. And they didn't care about that. So, you know, it, Paul was able to write about inexpressible joy in a Roman prison because he knew where he was going and he knew that his trials were very tempo, temporary. But, you know, this is, we, we look at the world from our perspective and he say, oh, he's in prison, it doesn't matter. I'm telling you what, it could be lethal if you got a cut on your finger. You know, when I, I'll give you an example of this. This is so you understand. When I was in the military, they, when I first went in, I was in basic training at Lackland Air Force Base. Yes, I was in the Air Force, so it doesn't count. But I was in basic training. Yeah, I know Air Force is a little different than the other services, but you did have to go through basic training. And so I was in basic training and they said on the first day, if anybody gets a cut of any kind, you are to report it immediately. Okay, and of course you're scared. You're scared out of your mind. Now everybody after basic training talks about, oh, we're so easy and blah, blah. I'm telling you, everybody there hated being there. Okay, anybody that says a basic training was great and easy and I had a ball and I partied with the, the uh, you know, drill instructor, they're lying. Okay, they didn't like being there. It was terrible. But Charlie Garrett got a cut on this finger right here. And I thought, I'm not gonna tell anybody because I don't wanna talk to these people. They're gonna yell at me. And my finger got so infected, I thought it was going to fall off of my hand. And that was in a clean, sterile environment that you cleaned every single day. But you got 40 guys around you, and you've got people that are breathing heavy and sweating and doing all the things they're doing. I honestly thought, I'm going to lose my finger over this. Okay? It was so filled with pus, and it was just, it was terrible. A teeny little cut. Now imagine being in a Roman prison, and you're in a place where there's rats, there's, there's all kinds of filth, and you get a cut down there, it'd be the end of your life. And so think of that when Paul, when you're reading the book of Philippians next time, what it was like for him. And yet he was able to talk about the joy of this hope that we have. Okay. Um, uh, in essence, uh, joy is the recognition of God's grace in our lives. It is something to be truly joyous about. And then we come to peace. This word indicates peace of mind. It is comparable to the Jewish word shalom which indicates more than just calm. We think of peace and we think, hey, peace. It means much more than that. Wholeness and completion when all the essential parts are joined together. It is God's gift of wholeness. And then he goes on to long-suffering. Before you do, yes. that letter you wrote or yeah. read, that's peace. Oh, absolutely. The one that I read from uh, yeah. Lynn and Mary? Absolutely. You know, I should read the whole thing. And if you, anybody wants to read that, tonight, I'll let you, because she said I could. She said, there's nothing that we write you that, that you have to hide, and if you want to use it as an example, and I said, this is exactly, this is exactly what I want to read to people, because we're in a world right now where people need to understand that believers can have that hope, you know? They're such wonderful people. Lynn and Mary are so gracious with their words, and they're, they're, they're just very nice people, so I can't wait. I'm never going to meet them in this life because of COVID-19. I'm never going to fly to to Oregon, but uh, someday I'm going to meet them and we're going to have a big party together in the presence of the Lord. Anyway, long-suffering. Patience is the short definition here, but it is a bit fuller than that. 
It is, yours had patience, right? Uh -huh. Okay, so patience and patience is the short definition here. Okay, um, it is a divinely regulated endurance, long suffering, which even is used by God of himself to show that he is truly able to endure our waywardness in order to reveal his character to us. What is the primary, premier example of long suffering in the Bible? God towards Israel. Israel. He has put up with them now for 3,000 years, okay? And they still, they, they ignore him. They revile him. They worship anything in that country that they want. They're, you go into people's houses and they got Buddhas set up. They got every single thing you can think of except the Lord. And there's a small pocket of true believers in Israel, okay? They're the Messianic believers, and a lot of them are fringe, too. I mean, I'm talking about the ones that truly understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the Hebrew Roots people that reinforce the law and all of those kind of things. I'm talking about the people that are truly free and understand Jesus. They're a small group, and it's like, you know, it's like America is now. We used to have this big congregation of Christians in America, and it's getting smaller by the year. People are dying off and new people aren't coming to them or they're coming to them through, you know, these uh, uh, name it and claim it churches and you don't have the, the body that we used to. But in Israel, they will do anything except worship the Lord as he has told them or revealed to them to do, which means through Jesus. They revile the name of Jesus. If somebody says, I'm a follower of Yeshua, they will have Something on their doorstep the next day that you do not want on your doorstep, or it'll be smeared all over their door, or somebody will put a little thing that'll burn and maybe try to burn down their house. He, Jesus is hated in Israel, actively hated by these people, and so you have to be very careful. But a lot of the people that don't actively hate him, I'm talking about the people that know who he is, and they're trained by their rabbis, and they're the, the ones that are, are religious but don't uh, follow the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. The general populace doesn't even know who he is. They know the name. They know they're not supposed to talk about him, but they don't know anything about him. He's just like anybody else to them. And when somebody presents Jesus properly to them, without telling them that he's speaking of Jesus usually, and they say, oh, that is marvelous, and then they find out it's Jesus, the light comes on, and that becomes a real true believer. Okay, but long-suffering of God towards Israel is the premier example that we can use there. But Think of each one of us. Okay, he's long-suffering with us, or I know he is with me, okay? I mean, I know he is. Mom's shaking her head. She knows he is too. But so we all have to understand that long-suffering is something that really has to come from way deep within us. It's not something that we can say, oh, I'm that, because we all have shortcomings and we have short tempers at times. And so long-suffering is something that you just read the pages of the Bible of God towards Israel. That'll give you the example you need. Okay, it is demonstrates the ability to wait a sufficient time before expressing anger. Does not mean that we shouldn't be angry. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. That's right. Okay, so, but we're not to be angry right away. We're not to blow off, as Paul said in the, the list of don'ts. He says people with fits of anger, okay, or fits of wrath, some of them say. Okay, the opposite of that is wait and be angry when the time is appropriate. So yes, we can be angry. We just want to not just blow off a fuse immediately, but to be long-suffering. And at some point, you're going to have to just, you know, let go. But that point is going to be different for all of us. Thus, it withholds any premature use of force concerning offense. 
And this is a world where everybody is offended, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you do, somebody is there to be offended, okay? Well, we need to be long-suffering with people like that. We need to let them know it's okay, you know, I, I may offend you by my existence, but you don't have to, you're not going to die over it, all right? And then eventually when they keep riling you over it, then you can get angry and say, I'm just not going to be around you anymore because you're, you're just harming my, yeah, you're a snowflake and you're harming my calm. So, okay, the next one is kindness. This word <clears throat> is described as that which is well-suited for use. It is the ability to meet real needs in the way that God would meet them and in the timing that he would meet them. As it is a divinely generated type of kindness, it rightly is known as a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces in us a goodness which meets the needs of others while avoiding natural carnal harshness. Once again, this is something that we have to volitionally work at. It's not something when we say the fruit of the Spirit, this is the problem with Pentecostalism. They think that as soon as you're saved, you're going to be infused with all of these fruits, and all of a sudden, you are put on a new level, and you're better than everybody else. That is not the way the Bible works, and all that does is it develops immature Christians who are holier than thou. That's all that does, okay? This is something that you have to work at. You have to read your Bible, and you have to say, I'm going to live out what this Bible is showing me. I'm going to apply what this Bible is saying. It has to be on your mind. You're not going to get, if you're not a kind person, you are not going to get kindness injected into you with a syringe by Dr. Holy Spirit. That's not going to happen. You have to say, I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to drive him down the road. I'm going to, I'm talking about you, thinking in your head, I'm going to be kind today. I'm going to be kind because Jesus is kind. The Bible says that I need to demonstrate kindness. And that is how you work this out. You are now in Christ. And so you're going to get your rewards for it. And the fruit is going to be produced in you. But you have to actively work it out. It's just like theology. Theology does not come by getting saved. Theology comes by learning how you got saved and all that goes along with it from the beginning of redemptive history all the way until the end. God has got this plan and that is how you get theology. Not by simply getting saved and saying, okay, I know all about the rapture because my pastor talked about it on Sunday. You have to take the entire book in its context, and that includes many, many, many doctrines and disciplines. Kindness is the same thing. You have to work at it, okay? Goodness. This speaks of goodness which is intrinsic in nature. It is a quality or condition which is related to believers because its source is found in God. It is revealed in both moral and spiritual excellence, okay? If you want to be considered good, you know, Jesus said, no man is good, okay? That means by ourselves and apart from Christ, we are not good. I don't care how good that person is, how nice that person is, how, you know, help, helpful that person is, whatever. He is not good because he is not in Christ. His sin is all that God sees. When we come to Christ, the sin is taken away. And when that sin is taken away, then from that point on, we can be good if we demonstrate goodness the way that God intends for us and the way that he is revealed to us out of his own good character, okay? So, once again, it is revealed in both moral and spiritual excellence. And then faithfulness. The word here is noted by Helps Word Studies as always being a gift from God. Always. Faithfulness. Never that which can be produced by people. It is God's divine persuasion, 
and therefore distinct from human belief, which is confidence, yet involving it. So we have confidence, we believe, the faithfulness comes beyond that. The Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so that they can know what he prefers. For example, the persuasion of his will, 1 John 5, 4. That was all helps word studies analysis there. In other words, what that means is that I am going to exercise faith and believe in Jesus Christ. That's not what that's talking about. From there, my faithfulness in God will come as a result of my knowledge of God, my pursuing of God and understanding what he has revealed. And how do I get that? Do I get that by uh, showing up at church? And yeah, that's right. I got somebody pointing at their Bible. You get it right here. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get it from the pulpit on Sunday if the preacher is competent. He should be able to tell you about those things as well or during a Bible study. But it ultimately comes from God. And the way that it comes from God is through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has given us a gift. And that gift is called the Holy Bible. Okay, people, I was listening to, a, uh, somebody sent me a clip to listen to yesterday, Mary, okay, she's down in Naples, she's, you all know her, okay, she was, you know what happened to Mary, this past Saturday, Mary, I, it was actually during the week, but she said, I'm going to come to mission work with you guys on Saturday, I was like, yes, and then she emailed me early Saturday morning, and she said, I was so excited about coming up to do mission work, I couldn't sleep all night, I can't drive. <laughs> So, so there you go. But anyway, she sent me, I would, I laughed about that. We, I told them at Mission Work, I said, she's supposed to be here, but she was too excited last night. Um, yeah, I get that way. Uh, when I have something coming up the next day, I just, I can't sleep and my mind is going and I'm all, I'm the same way. But um, uh, she sent me a clip of somebody that was uh, preaching and I agreed with his thoughts is that in the Bible, you've got people that do certain things in the book of Acts, right? And I try to tell people this. He just packaged it a different way than I, I do, but it's the same general thought. The book of Acts, as Jim will now say, is a descriptive, descriptive book, okay? Yeah. That means it describes what is going on. It doesn't prescribe anything. It doesn't prescribe, what what's that? That's what I said. You said what? Oh, he said, well, he was thinking descriptive. He's got Charlie Garrett's, um, uh, dyslexia. yeah, dyslexia. Okay, it is descriptive. It describes what's going on. It has a couple prescriptive verses at the beginning where Jesus tells them to do certain things. And other than that, it, it doesn't really prescribe anything, okay? And the reason why we have these accounts and stories and things that are not to happen in the church, like Paul says, certain things aren't to happen in the church, but they do happen in the book of Acts, is because they didn't have something. What didn't they have? They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the epistles. And so he had to do allowance for people to prophesy. He had to have people that could do things in order to get the word to the people that didn't exist at that time. Okay? And that's why those accounts are there, is to show us how the church was established, not how to run the church today. Paul tells us how to run the church today. Peter tells us how to run the church today. James and Jude all tell us about the workings of the church today, okay? But the book of Acts does not do that. And so that is why when we have this right here that we're talking about, faithfulness, and the Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer. Yielded is a key there. You have to yield to the Lord or you're not going to get this. How do you yield? By reading the word and then applying it to your life, okay? They can know what he prefers. How do you know what he prefers? 
right here. They didn't have that in the book of Acts. They didn't have this to tell us what God prefers now that we have a relationship with Christ. And so people prophesied until the time that the word was compiled and given to the church. Those things are no longer needed now, and that is the fundamental error of New Testament churches. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. 99%, this is Charlie Garrett theology, 99% of error in church doctrine, I would say, and I'm talking about proper, I'm not talking about churches that you know do things nowadays like the Episcopal Church. I'm talking about churches that were established thinking that they are going to have a church that is teaching right doctrine. 99% of their bad doctrine is because they take the book of Acts and they apply it as a prescriptive book. And that is where error comes in. Once you do that, once you use the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner, you are going to have a bad church that is not fundamentally sound in its theology, okay? You must go to the epistles, and you can refer to Acts. As a matter of fact, as soon as we finish Revelation, if the Lord hasn't come first, the next commentary that I'm going to write is going to be a line-by-line -line commentary of Acts. We did it in a Bible study. Unfortunately, it was never saved, and so I'm going to do that. And then if we ever get through the New Testament and Revelation in Bible studies, then we'll go back and do Acts again, because this is where our theology is. All the rest of the things we'll do in sermons up until eventually when I'm 197 years old and we'll get to the book of John and we'll finish that. Okay, but for right now, that's that's the plan. Okay, we'll read 1 John 5, 4 just because they referenced it in Helps Word Studies. Uh, that's 2 John, 1 John 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And that's what they're talking about, our faith. And how do you increase that? It's by increasing your knowledge of the Word of God. And you're not going to get it by putting this under your pillow and saying, okay, I'm going to nap. You know, somebody emailed me today, and he said, I'm so thankful that you told us to listen to the Bible. He obviously is not a reader like Ethan, but he sent me a short email, and he said, I've been listening to the Bible, and I have just increased in knowledge exponentially. I'm so glad to hear that. If you just get into the Word, your life is going to change. If you're not a good reader, listen to the Bible, but stay in the Bible above everything else. Find to go to church, find to listen to preachers, find to read commentaries, but just know the Bible first, because if you know the Bible first, then when you hear something that isn't right, you can say, that doesn't sound right, and then you can go question it by reading commentaries on that verse or something. But if you hear a preacher and you don't know your Bible, you are totally at his mercy. 100% totally. And that's why we have Mormons today. That's why we have them. That's why we have all of these other cults and uh, do uh, poor doctrines is because somebody came out and said, this is what I'm going to teach. And people had no reason to not believe them. And that's why we have all of these different things going on in the world. Okay? So, 523. <clears throat> yes, we have time. One more. Gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Okay, that's pretty short. Maybe we're going to get through two more. We'll see. Um, Paul completes, you said gentleness and self-control. Yeah, same thing. <clears throat> Paul completes his list of the fruits of the Spirit in this verse. This is not an all-inclusive list. Other fruits of and gifts of the Spirit are provided in his other letters as well. Romans 14 or 15, he gives some of them, etc. Okay. However, this list is given in contrast to the works of the flesh. He, yes. You're saying fruits. 
Yeah. The word says fruit of the spirit. Of fruit, yeah, fruit. There's one spirit, and that's fruit of it. That's right. Okay. Okay. Anyway, but and it probably is in the singular in the Greek. But I'm reading fruits, and I probably shouldn't do that. You're right. There, there's fruit of the spirit, and then there are the individual fruits. We'll go with that. Okay. okay. Yes. Okay. Because each one of these is an individual, but there's one fruit of the spirit, and I bet you're right on that. Um, but I don't have the Greek in front of me, and I'm not going to go looking it up right now. But good. Um, Paul completes his list of the fruit, parentheses, S, of the Spirit in this verse. This is not an all-inclusive list. Oh, yeah, I said that. Okay. Um, however, this list is given in contrast to works of the flesh. And why is he giving this list in the book of Galatians? Is because Judaizers want him to go back to the law. The law is contrary to the Spirit. Okay, and that's why he's giving them this list instead of Romans, where he talks about administrations and helps and all of those other things. Here, he's giving them a list of things that the law brings out in a person. If you're living under the law, you are naturally going to have the uh, fruit of the uh, flesh, naturally. Okay, and that's why he's giving us this particular list is because if you are under law, you're not under grace. If you're under grace, then you are living in the Spirit and you are walking by the Spirit. The two cannot happen at the same time. And if you're in a Hebrew Roots Movement church, you cannot be walking by the Spirit. It is impossible. You might be the kindest person in the world, but you are not walking in the Spirit because you are under works of the law. Okay, Paul has made that clear. He's going to continue with that in chapter 6. This list here is to correct that in their thinking, okay? Uh, however, this list is given in contrast to that which you previously noted. The last two that he now mentions are, first, gentleness. This word is another one which has a root that emphasizes the divine origin of meekness. In other words, it is a gentle strength which expresses power, and yet it is a reserved power. Despite the ability to crush one's foes, there can be gentleness towards them. Help's Word Study says that it begins, this is their comments, it begins with the Lord's inspiration and finishes by his direction and empowerment. How are we directed? The Word. That's right. Okay, and we're empowered by doing what the Word says. It is a divinely balanced virtue that can only operate through Faith. So he gave faithfulness, now he's giving this. Self-control. This is the last one of the list. This means properly dominion within. In other words, it is a control of oneself that proceeds outward from within. Again, helps notes concerning this virtue that, this is their note, can only be accomplished by the power of the Lord. Accordingly, it is explicitly called a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and let me... This goes here, and Paul says of this list, which comprised the majority of verses 22 and 23, that against them there is no such, or such against such there is no law. There's no law against these things because they are in accord with the Spirit. There is a law against the other things because they're not in accord with the Spirit. They are in accord with the flesh, and the law brings about deeds of the flesh. It does not bring about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so this is speaking of the fruit, the things, not those who display them, meaning the people. It's the thing, not the people. There is no law for such things because they transcend any law. They come from God and are fruit of his spirit. Now, 
I wrote fruits each time in my commentary, but I'm saying fruit for your benefit, so you don't yell at me again. I started to cry. Nobody saw it, but I was... Okay, I don't know. I'm going to check the Greek to make sure. If it's fruits, great. If it's fruit, it's great. Therefore, no law can exist against them. Instead, they are what will naturally flow from him as we yield to his will. And how do we yield it to his will? Once again, how do we do that? We got to know what his will is. We have to know what the will of God is before we can yield to it. As I said, there's a lot of Mormons out there, and they yielded to what they thought was the will of God. And they're still doing their hocus pocus now, 150 years later, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and all around the world, because they didn't pay heed. You know, if they would just read Galatians chapter 1, they would have seen that what Joseph Smith was saying was incorrect, and it would have all been avoided. One person out of the entire group following him could have picked up his Bible and said, if anyone brings to you another gospel than the one that I am presented, even an angel from heaven, let him be anathema. And what did he claim? An angel from heaven gave him his revelation. If they had just picked that up and said, I'm going to live by the word of God and not by what man is telling me, there would be no Mormonism today. They carry with them the Joseph Smith's commentary. Yeah, sure. And, and they believe that. Absolutely they I, do. I told that one guy, you know, I said, if you put that thing away and get you a Bible, yeah. you could You'd be a lot better the, off. You could avoid the, the, the comments in verse 6 up there where he says you're going to be anathema, you know, anybody that proclaims something other than the Word. Absolutely. By the way, this John 6, 63, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit led in yeah, the spirit. That's right. They are spirit and they are life. So we take God's word. They are spirit. They are spirit and they are life. And I think you've just robbed us of our chance to do another verse. Oh. That's okay. I, I, I know I'm not. Don't worry. That was a good comment. I'm glad you said that. John 6, 63, these words are spirit and they are life. Yes. And Plus, I still have to give a life application. So we'll be done four minutes early today. Um, no, no, no. That was wonderful. I'm glad you did that. I just thought I'd poke you. That's all. Okay. Um, let's see here. Life application. It needs to be noted once again that as believers, we can never get more of the Spirit of God. It is impossible because we are saved by God and He gets all, we get all of the Spirit we will ever get. But He can get more of us. We yield to Him, okay? Uh, we can never get more of the Spirit of God than that which was first received upon belief. You are sealed, you've got the Spirit. However, we can yield to God and the Spirit can get more of us. This is the purpose of Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit, or fruit of the Spirit. Our ability to exercise these gifts is dependent on our yielding to Him and allowing Him to work through us. And that cannot happen unless we know the Word of God. It cannot happen. It is impossible. And we can be misguided in the Word of God. We can be have somebody manipulate the Word of God, etc. But unless we know that we are living by the word of God as God has given us, it is impossible. So if you want to live by the spirit, know the word of God. It doesn't matter what you do in a Pentecostal church for show. It doesn't mean diddly. You have to know the word of God in order to do what Paul says is pleasing to God. So we'll go ahead and go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful chance to come into your presence and to look at your word and to study it and to just revel in it. What a beautiful word you've given us and it gives us all the hope and surety that we possess. And I thank you for the, the faith of Mary, who's going through her own physical problems, which are debilitating right now. She's going through 
family issues that have taken away the joy of this world, and yet at the same time, you are good, oh God. You have given her and Lynn a joy that transcends this world, and I know that so many other people feel this in their lives, is that even with things going south around us, we can still know that we have the best hope of all. We have the greatest hope and the eternal joy, which is set before us because of what you have done through Christ. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me turn this up. Okay, we got uh, uh, a break, 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 break. Yes, okay.